Thank you. I appreciate it, Robert. As you said, my name is Marty, and I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for allowing me the time to come. I'm obviously shorter than what y'all are uh, a little bit accustomed to. It's kind of like being a kid at the adult table with everything being high, but we'll, uh, we'll manage. And breakfast, I'm sure it was great. I didn't eat breakfast. What happens when I eat early is the food fills up my stomach, presses on my lungs, and it makes my breath come in short pants, and I just don't like preaching in short pants. Sorry, very lame joke. But I I am glad y'all are here this morning, and I'm glad for the opportunity to be here. And on behalf of Pendleton Street Baptist Church, brothers and sisters in Christ at Pendleton Street Baptist Church, I want to assure you of our continued prayers on your behalf. Our prayer is that God works in you to transform you to his image, to work through you to declare his glory and his testimony and his glorious gospel to this community and around the world. Isn't it great to have brothers and sisters in Christ that work together for his glory, surrendered and yielded to him? We're studying from the Gospel of John, chapter 5. As a matter of fact, this is last week's sermon, part 2. We're picking up in the same conversation. And so I want us to read our text today. But before we read our text, I want to introduce you to someone by means of testimony. There's a New Testament scholar. There was a New Testament scholar. She died just a few years ago. Her name was Etta Linneman. Her educational credentials were impeccable. She had studied under the masters of form criticism or textual criticism. She was a renowned New Testament scholar. She was a personal assistant to Rudolf Bultmann and Ernest Fuchs. And she had become part of the elite in the practice of the historical critical method of Bible study. Her first book became a bestseller. She became a professor of theology at Braswig Technical University in Germany. She was awarded the title of the professor of New Testament in theology at Phillips University, Marburg. She was inducted into the prestigious Society for New Testament Studies. Very well known. Academic uh, credentials beyond um, any criticism. But she began to reflect upon her approach to studying the Word of God. And she came to the conclusion that her scientific approach to the Scriptures were missing the point of the Scriptures, were missing the truth of Scriptures. Later of this period of time, she would write about herself. I couldn't understand at first why my professors would always say, no, it cannot have been as it is written, speaking of the Scriptures. And though she had become very enamored and fully involved in the historical, critical, scientific approach to the study of the Word of God, she began to realize that she had missed the truth that the Word was declaring She saw that she was serving a theological philosophy rooted in agnosticism. The brilliant Dr. Etta Linneman became profoundly disillusioned. She left her position at school. She started drinking alcohol and abusing alcohol. And she found her release. This was in the uh, 70s, early 70s. She found a, a, a way to keep her mind off of her disillusionment and depression by becoming immersed in television. She became addicted by her testimony to television. But at her lowest, she experienced grace. Here's what she writes. At that point, God led me to vibrant Christians who knew Jesus personally as the Lord and Savior. I heard their testimonies as they reported what God had done in their lives. And finally, God himself spoke to my heart by means of a Christian brother's words. By God's grace and love, I entrusted my life to Jesus. He immediately took my life into his saving grasp and began to transform it radically. 
my destructive addictions were replaced by a hunger and thirst for his word and for fellowship with Christians. I was able to recognize sin clearly as sin rather than just merely making excuse for it. Another part of this I did not include in what I recorded or to share with you was she said, it was a blessing. It was almost a euphoric divine experience when I realized black is black and white is white and life is not just some miasma of gray. At that point, uh, uh, what, so, so what happened to her? In 1977, by God's grace, she says, I experienced Jesus. I experienced Jesus as the one whose name is above all names. I was permitted to realize that Jesus is God's son. He was born of a virgin. He is the Messiah and Son of Man. And these titles were not merely conferred on him as a result of some human deliberation. I recognized first mentally and then in a vital experiential way that Holy Scripture is inspired. It is God's word. And that's why I say no to the historical critical method of theology. I regard everything that I taught and wrote before I entrusted my life to Jesus as refuse. I have pitched my two books, my contrib- multiple contributions to journals, anthologies, and all previous writings in the trash with my own hands, and I recommend that you do the same. If you have any on your bookshelf, I found that you can trust your Bible because in the pages of Scripture, you meet Jesus, God's Son, the Savior. And then she went on to say, I pray that he will use me to bring others to him. Isn't that a great testimony? The testimony of a transformed life radically changed through Scripture. But I believe that we're going to see some parallels with her testimony and her experiences to what we're studying in our text today, which is why I wanted to introduce her to you early. Before we continue, let's just pray and ask God to speak to our hearts. Father, thank you so much for the time that we have together as brothers and sisters in Christ to look into your word, to listen to you speak, to continue the conversation that we began listening to last week to see what you claim and what you say about yourself and the way that you communicate the truth of your reality and God's work in bearing witness to Jesus as the Savior through the different means that he employed in that day. And I pray for us here. I pray, first of all, that as believers, we will see you with fresh eyes. We will again remember that Christianity is not a lifestyle. It's not a way of living. It is a relationship with a living person, the person of Jesus Christ. It is being filled with the Spirit of God. It is is being made alive spiritually. And I pray, Father, that you will remind us of the intimacy you desire with you and that seeing you as revealed on the pages of Scripture, seeing you as revealed in our hearts by your Holy Spirit, we will again deepen and strengthen our relationship with you, standing in wonder at who you are. I pray also, Father, That if there's anyone here who knows the truth mentally and who has handled the Word of God and who knows enough to carry on a discussion or argument or a debate or knows enough to engage the truth, but they've never encountered you in Scripture, through Scripture, that they've never met you personally, that today that you will open their eyes, that today that you will soften their heart, and that today as believers you'll equip us to know how to carry on conversations, how to do as you did in the words of Scripture recorded here, how to proclaim the, the wonder, the majesty, the awe, the perfectness of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only means of salvation. Father, encourage us in our time together today. Convict us. Speak to us. We would hear. In your name I pray. Amen. 
All right, we're in John chapter 5, so make sure you've got your Bibles open to the Gospel of John chapter 5, either the paper or the electronic. It doesn't make any difference, but we have to make sure we've got the context because last week we started in John chapter 5, verse 1. This is that, that second big section in John that, that uh, you guys are going through. And Jesus is with his disciples. He's come to Jerusalem, and it is a feast time. And you remember the first thing that happens in John chapter 5? He goes to the pool of Bethesda. Now, I want you, again, just don't read this as some sort of academic historical exercise. Put yourself there. You're with Jesus in the crowds at feast days in Jerusalem. Lots of people around. You come to this pool where there is this pool of water. There are these colonnades that are built around. And there is a lot of people laying around, but they're not sunbathing. As a matter of fact, you see that their legs are twisted. Their arms are twisted. They're lame. They're paralyzed. They are sick. And they're there for a specific reason because there is a superstition or there is a belief that an angel will come from time to time and stir the water. And when the angel comes and stirs the water, be the first one in because if you're the first one in, you'll get healed. And so it was an attractive place to those who needed healing. Jesus sees a man who's been there. Now, for 38 years, he's been lame. For 38 years. That's a long time. And for a long time, we don't know specifically how long, he is laying by that pool of water. And Jesus looks at him and says, sir, would you be healed? Isn't that a great question? Do you want to be healed? Now, how would you respond if you were that guy? Yes. Do you all interact? <laughs> I don't know. Just, just bear with me. A little bit about me personally, and I'm trying not to embarrass Suzanne too much, but I pastored deaf churches for 13 years. Okay? Um, when you, when you communicate with deaf people, it's all visual. And so when you're speaking or when you're talking, deaf people look and they give you feedback, either through their expressions or through their signs or through their movements. And we would be interactive in our communication. I have found that you can tell if a deaf person is listening or not, because if they're not looking at you, they're not listening to you. Very, very easy. But I have found that hearing people can look you right in the face and not hear a word you say. And so I'm going to be a little interactive. You're the guy on the ground. You've been there for a long time. You've been 38 years lame. And this guy comes up and says, do you want to be healed? I mean, what would your response be? What do you think? Why do you think I'm here? I want to be healed, but I can't be because that's what I'm trusting in. And I've got no one to help me get there. And Jesus shows him, don't put your trust in that. This is where your trust belongs. Arise. Take up your bed. And walk. A miracle. This guy who for 38 years has been unable to walk, he's been on a mat. Now he gets up, and the very mat that carried him, he rolls up at Jesus' command, puts on his shoulders, and begins to carry around. A testimony to what God has done, what Jesus has just done in his life. And the Pharisees see this guy, and they're all excited about it. You guys remember the story? And uh, they're like, hey, 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 hey. Remember what day it is? Yeah, it's the Sabbath. Got some rules. Here, here's our list of 39. Things you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. You are breaking the law of God. Not my fault. Not my fault. This guy, this guy healed me. And he told me to take up my mat and to walk. And I'm doing what he says do. He healed me. Who was it? I don't know. He disappeared into the crowd. Later, Jesus finds him in the temple, and they have the salvation encounter, or they have the spiritual encounter, go and sin no more. There's worse than being physically lame, all right? And so he has that encounter, but they come to Jesus. He goes and says, it was Jesus. It's this guy here, 
And so they come. And what is their first, what is their first complaint against Jesus? What is their first complaint? You're working on the Sabbath. You're breaking the law of God. We've got some verses, I think, that will put us in the context of this. If you go back up to verse 19. So what they have said is their first accusation is you are breaking the law of, of God. You're a religious leader. And the, the inference is you can't do that on the Sabbath. And their idea is even God doesn't work on the Sabbath. Isn't that true? Six days he worked, seventh day he rested, six days shall you labor, enjoy your work. And their thinking is even God didn't work on the Sabbath. So we're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And what is Jesus' response? Verse 17 of John chapter 5. Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Catch that. What he's telling them, point blank, I'm not breaking God's law. He's working, I'm working. And if you have difficulty understanding the point Jesus is making, they didn't. Verse 18 reads, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Their first deal was, you're breaking the Sabbath. He said, I'm not breaking the Sabbath because I and the Father are one. We're equal. And so he significantly upped the stakes in his claims. And just in case you're still uncertain of Jesus' claim, verse 19, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son, me, can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does also. So last week we saw the claims. This is the first truly, truly claim. The first truly, truly, I say unto you, indeed and in truth, pay attention Absolute propositional statements. Grab this and hold it. This is what I'm saying about myself. And the first truly, truly claim is I and the Father are one in our actions and what we do. His second truly, truly claim he goes on to make. He says, I am the one who God has given. I have the power. I have life in me as the Father has life in him. I have the power to give life. And his third truly, truly claim, that's in verse 24 and then later in verse 25. I have the authority to judge the resurrection. Some will be resurrected to life. Some will be resurrected to judgment. And so these are massive, earth-shaking claims. Who is this guy? Now, I titled this sermon, Witnesses to Jesus. Pretty straightforward. If you read the ESV, that's what it says, Witnesses to Jesus. You don't have to be very creative with that title. I I started to call it Jesus on Trial, or As God is My Witness, or Is Jesus Really Who He Claims to Be? Because they accuse him, and he makes these claims that are almost concatenate in nature. They're bold statements. I am equal with God in my work. I have the power of life. I am the one. There will be resurrection, and then there will be those resurrected to life and those resurrected to judgment. God has given judgment to me. This is a massive claim. And I want you to understand, we read that today, and we say, oh, yeah, okay, good. Got it. That's who Jesus said he was. But those guys standing there raised, grown up, entrenched in that, for him to make that claim, this was audacious. This was bold. This was massive. And I will tell you, that's why we got to be careful. We can't play it when we think about who Jesus is or what we believe about who Jesus is. He either is who he says he is or he's a complete nut. He's not worth even listening to at all. And so there's no middle ground just based upon what Jesus says he is or who Jesus says he is. And so as we go through the text today, and now all that's the introduction, and I I might need to apologize. Both Ted and Robert told me they normally preach about 15-minute sermons. We may go a little bit further than that. (laughs) 
Yeah, neither one of them told me they preached fifteen minute sermons. But I do want us to to take some moment and to stand in wonder at the person of Jesus. You still have your Bibles open to John chapter five. Don't close them. We'll be in it all that all during this time. But look at verse twenty three. As a matter of fact, not not only look at it, I'm reading from the ESV, but I want you to read it along with me out loud. Verse 23. We'll start with the word that. Did you start there? Okay. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. I want you to get that. We're going to stop right there in that phrase. This is that first part of that phrase in verse 23. What All that has happened, what, what God has granted the Lord Jesus Christ and the opportunity to give life and the judgment, all these truly, truly statements come to this point, culminating in this point when Jesus says the way that you worship God, the way that you honor God, the way that you are, are, are approaching this God, the Father, Yahweh, that's the way you're to approach me. Do you understand what I'm talking about, the claims? So I want us to recognize and to stand in wonder at what Jesus does reveal. I hope that the, in the power of the Holy Spirit you'll find yourselves in that crowd listening to the words of Jesus, that you'll hear them with fresh ears, and that you will with me rejoice in the marvelous grace of God in sending His Son, who is equal with the Father, and who does only what the, wor- the works of His Father. He who brings the dead to life and resurrects the dead, either to life or judgment, I pray that we will honor the Son, just as we honor the Father. With the rest of that statement, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. And so Jesus brings witnesses to support. Now, to our text today, Jesus again reiterates the claim. Verse 30, we're going to read verse 30 through 32. Jesus, again, same conversation. You with me? Same conversation. He says, I can do nothing on my own. Same thing he said in verse 19. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now, we need to come back and unpack some of those statements, because some of them seem a little little bit confusing. The first thing is that declaration, I am one with the Father. The Father is one with me. I do nothing on my own. He said in verse 19, those things that I see, now he says those things that I hear. Listen, I am one with the Father. Right, bold, bold claim. The judgment that I make, and he's making his judgment about himself in this text, is true because I'm not, I have no personal agenda apart from God's agenda. Uh, I seek not mine own will, but the will of him who sent me. His nature and his mission remove even the possibility that he would do anything independent of his Father. And now this truth is applied to all of the testimony of Christ, not just his deeds, and works, but his judgments are righteous because it is God's will that he seeks. And so he begins to present his witnesses. And the first thing he says, and this is a little confusing because he says, um, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. What's he saying there? If it's just me that says it, is it true? A little bit of a trick question here. All right. Is he saying I'm a liar? You can't trust me? No, but what he is saying is your teaching, Deuteronomy chapter 15, says you need two or three witnesses. I don't expect you to take just my word about it. It won't be true in your estimation. We know that because just a few chapters over in John chapter 8, we come to verse 13 and 14. 
And Jesus makes a statement. Matter of fact, let's start in verse 12, John 8. Jesus spoke to them saying, I'm the light of the world. There's another claim. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So not another claim, the same claim in a different way. So the Pharisees said to him, what do they say? Verse 13, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus said, even if I bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgments are true because it is not I alone who judge, but he's back to that claim. I and the Father who sent me. And then verse 17, just to put this in context. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. And then verse 18, who are the two people? I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So Jesus is saying, I don't, you don't have to just take my word for it. I've got witnesses beyond simply my word. The two or three witnesses requirement of Deuteronomy 19.15, and so he begins to introduce his witnesses. Now, verse 32 We just read, there is another who bears witness about me. He does not name him in that statement. But who is it that bears witness that Jesus is the Christ, that he is who he claims he is? It's the Father. I claim Jesus as my own Father. We'll see this later as we get into the text. But then we see, ask the question, how does God do this? How is God born witness to Jesus as the Son of God, equal with God, the giver of life? In the judge. And who's the first person that he calls? So witness number one, verse 33. Who's our first witness? You sent to John. This is John the Baptist. And he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. First witness to the stand, John the Baptist. For 400 years, the voice of God has been silent. No prophetic voice in the land. And now we got this guy coming out of the wilderness that Malachi foretold would come. And he's coming to prepare the way of the Lord. And when he came out of the wilderness, the Pharisees sent representatives to ask him what was going on, who he was, and why he was there. You remember reading that in John chapter 1? We'll bring um, Robert, you be John the Baptist. Okay, listen to John's testimony about who Christ is. You're on the witness stand. Who is this Christ? John chapter one. John chapter one, beginning in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they answered him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Keep going. Because not only did he give that to, hold on, not only did he give, keep going, John, not only did he give that testimony to the representatives from the Pharisees who came to talk to him, 
Later on, who is this one whose straps he's not worthy to untie? Let's see his, his encounter with Christ. Next Verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes, comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John's testimony to the person of Christ, equal with God, the Messiah, the only means of salvation, God's way of salvation, God in the flesh. His first witness that we have on the stand today is John. And verse 24 in John chapter 1 is that I have borne witness that this is the Christ, the promised Messiah, the Son of the living God. So you've got the word of Christ, which is reliable and dependable, even though he did not expect them to take just his word. He brings John the Baptist, whom they had already questioned. But there's another witness. If you look with me again, back in John chapter 36, I mean chapter 5, verse 36, we pick up with the next witness. But the testimony, Jesus says, that I have is greater than just that of John. I don't need John's testimony or man's testimony. Glad to have it. He was a burning and shining lamp. And when he came out, you rejoiced in it. You were excited. He was the prophet, but you did not believe just his testimony. So I have a greater witness. Uh, and what is that witness? The works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So we have Jesus' testimony. We have John the Baptist, his testimony. But why, why were they in this conversation to begin with? Do you remember? Because there's this guy who had been lame for 38 years, walking around carrying his mat. By the way, he's probably not walking. He's probably at the very least skipping. He might have been jumping, running, jogging. You, I, he was on his toes. He was not on his heels. All right? He was excited. He was healed for the first time in 38 years. They, they knew him. I am confident there were people in the crowd, if not the original Pharisees who called him out, that recognized this guy. Man, what happened to you? Were you the first one? Did you make it to the pool? Did you roll over and flop in? No. There was one who spoke to me. What's his name? I don't know. And later Jesus comes, and it's Jesus that spoke to him. So why are they even having this conversation? Because they saw the works. But did the works make any impression upon them? What, what are these, what's this thing about miracles? What, what is all this taking place about miracles in the life of Christ? According to this, these works and the emphasis, you see how John repeats things. Um, the works the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, the works, the works, they bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. The works also bear witness. It is the witness of works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the miracles of sign, and signs and wonders done before your very eyes. These miracles do not take the place of the Word of God, but they are evidence in support of the claims of Christ. You guys have been in John, so you read John 3, right? There was a man of the Pharisees named... Make sure you're awake. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night, and he said unto him, Rabbi, 
Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can what? Again, you can tell when I memorize different passages of Scripture by the translation I memorized them in. When I was young, all my translation memorization was in, all my Bible verse memorization was in the King James Version. As I got older, it became the NASB, and more recently, it's in the ESB. So, bear with the King James Version. Rabbi, Rabbi, no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. No man can do these miracles, these signs, these wonders that you're doing. It's a testimony that at the very least, God is with you. And why do we even have the gospel of John? What does John say about his book? At the close of John's gospel, he tells why he's written of these miracles, these signs and wonders. Uh, Chapter 20, verse 30, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. These are written, these signs recorded, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. First witness. Give it to me. Who's the first witness? Okay. John. In this text, Jesus bearing witness of himself. He knew they wouldn't take it. So the first witness he presents on his behalf is John. Second witness. Works. What's the third witness? Let's look at the next passage of Scripture. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness. This is verse 37. About me. His voice you've never heard. His form you've never seen. We're going to come back to verse 37 and 38 a little bit later. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one who he has sent. Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Verse 40, and yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now I want us to... To come back, we'll come back to that in a moment, but I want us to look at this next witness, the witness of Scripture. The entire revelation of God has prepared the way for the coming of the Son. You remember I talked about Dr. Linneman at the beginning of the study, her testimony? She was a student of the Word of God. She memorized whole chapters. She went to the original language. She studied the historical context. She was technically astute in her study of the Word of God, but she missed the whole point. These Jews were skilled in the law. They were skilled in the law of Moses. As a matter of fact, they claimed to be the, 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 the descendants of Moses, that Moses was their father. Not only Abraham, we'll get to Abraham later, as you get later in John, but Moses, the lawgiver, he's the one that we embrace. And so they were students. And we'll see later that Jesus tells them, I'm not accusing you before the Father. I don't have to. Moses himself. So we go for all the way from Genesis to the, the, the first prophet, prophetic writer in Old Testament Scripture to the last promised prophet, John the Baptist, all the way through the Old Testament, accuses you, makes you guilty before God. Now, uh, so we're looking at the testimony of Scriptures and how they handled the Scriptures. Uh, they were very astute in... Uh, in, in how they handled the Scripture. Every letter was ascribed a number. Every line, they found the central number and character in those lines. When the scribes would transcribe the next copy of the Scriptures, they could only do one letter before they went back to the original to put in the next letter. 
And so they felt like the very handling of the word of God was truth, but they missed the point. The revelation of God had prepared the way for the coming of Son of Man from Moses to John the Baptist, from Genesis 1, where God speaks of himself in the plural, to Genesis 3, where the seed of woman, the proto-euangelion, the proto-evangel, is the first gospel is prophesied, to the multiple types of Christ. And these types are those examples or those material or personal accounts that show forth the character of the coming Messiah, the Passover, the tabernacle. Man, I wish I had time to look at Christ in the Old Testament. Wait, as I was preparing for this, I got to go back and look at the tabernacle and how it proclaims God's interaction with mankind and their need for a perfect sacrifice. The whole sacrificial system proclaims Christ. We see in the book of Hebrews that it is completed once and for all. What did John say about Jesus? The perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His blood shed completed all of these Old Testament truths that clearly point everything from the man. I can't even complete a sentence here, can I? I'll slow down. Thanks. Everything from the manna in the Old Testament to the persons of the Old Testament, everything from the sacrificial ritual to the bronze serpent, uh, the persons of Adam, uh, a priest in the line of Melchizedek, uh, Joshua, uh, all of these things, and also the truth of the law, the central truth of the law. The law that was to, was to point out that namely in his own strength, man can never achieve salvation. If man is to be saved, another will have to save him. And that other is the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah. And through more than 300 prophecies fulfilled in Christ, the scriptures bear witness to Christ. Are you there yet? Can you stand with me in all listening to the testimony of John the baptizer, listening to the Testimony of the mighty works of Christ and miracles that affirm God working in him. And through the testimony of Scripture that many of you have been studying all your lives, that every page points to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and wonder at God's culmination of his plan as he stands before these people. Get this now. Imagine, just imagine with me, the doors were to burst open. And a guy comes in and he says, you've been waiting on the Messiah. Here I am. And you're skeptical. I'm not going to take your word for it. You don't have to take my word for it. Look, my father is declaring this to you. And there's this first witness who, when he baptized me, the father spoke aloud and he heard his voice. The spirit descended as a, as a dove. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. We heard his firsthand account. And look, look at what I've done. The deaf hear, the blind see, the lame walk. The dead are brought to life. Look, and you see it. It's not a guess. You can bring in the doctors. Limbs that were withered are now whole as though they had never been ill at all. Evidence, evidence. But more than that, look. Look again at the pages of the book that you have studied they speak of me again and again and again. Witness number three, we stand in awe of the person of Christ. And yet now we come to what I think is one of the saddest verses in Scripture. And it's one of the saddest things that you will ever experience as a believer who is obediently sharing the gospel. Verse 40, yet you refuse. And that can be interpreted and it can be legitimately interpreted. You don't want to. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. 
It's here. I'm here. You refuse to come. Verse 41, I do not receive glory from people. I don't need your praise. I'm not here so that you will be praising and and giving glory to me. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. How do I know that? Because if I did, if you did, I have come into my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another one comes into his own name, you'll receive him. And, man, there are a lot of examples. I won't go through history, but there are at least seven different, quote, messianic people, including Bar Kokhba in the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, A.D. 70, that, that, that the, the, the Pharisees were like, yeah, we're going to get on board with this guy. And yeah, we're getting on board with this guy. But they rejected Christ. Verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you set your hope. If you believed in Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you not believe his writings, how will you believe my word? Listen to me really close because we're closing up here. I know. I know. But the first thing I want you to note, that they, possibly, probably, some of you, but certainly people you know, don't believe because they put their hope in the wrong thing. They put their hope in their skillfulness at handling the scripture or their skillfulness at being a good person and getting better. At our office at 606 Pendle Street, we office at the United Ministries, and right next door to our office is a financial planning business. And they have a statue out front. <laughs> and it just, one day I'm going to drive over it in my car. I'm just going to tell you that. If you hear somebody running over it, it wasn't me. All right? no. But it shows basically a, a stone or a tree trunk. I'm not, but you have a guy chiseling himself out of the, the, the encasement, the stone. Right? And the picture there is, look at what we're doing. Look at how successful I am and how successful I can be. It's one of those things. You can do it. If you put your mind to it, humanity's getting better. You can be a better person than you just have to believe. You have to put yourself, in, you have to have confidence in yourself. You have to love yourself. You have to embrace yourself. You have to, you have to believe that you can and you can. And that is the gospel of the world that flies into the face of the teachings, the writings of Moses and the words of Jesus where the Bible clearly says, None of us can. You can't. If you put your hope in yourself, you are without hope. There is only one place for hope. There is only one giver of life. He proclaims himself here. He has demonstrated it. There are witnesses to it. And you need to know if you're trusting in being good to get to heaven or you're trusting in your skillfulness or you're trusting in how you manage and handle things, you're not going to make it because you can't get to heaven on your own. You can't. You put your hope in the wrong things. Some people will refuse to come to Christ or refuse to believe because they fear man rather than God. They seek the glory of people rather than God. They want to be wealthy. They want to be rich. They want to, they want to be recognized. They, they don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to be one of those Jesus nuts. I don't want to be those people who get put on TV and criticized. I don't want to be one of those. Yeah, I don't want to be one of those portrayed by the world as, as, as foolish and, and, and stupid and small-minded and some sort of country hick. you got to believe. 
And so because of the fear of man is so great, and they seek the glory of man rather than the glory of God, they refuse to believe. The, the statement that he makes here at the, at the very end, not only did they have a misplaced hope, not only did they, were they more concerned about people than God, but they just simply did not believe God's word. Don't think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. If you do not believe in his writings, how will you believe my word? And I want to go back up to verse, this, the condition of many people. Verse 37, the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard. Long ago, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, how has he spoken to us? He has spoken to us by his son, Hebrews 1. You don't hear the word of God. Jesus is speaking, and yet you refuse to hear. His form you have never seen. Jesus is described in Colossians 1 as the image, the icon of the invisible God. He says, I'm standing here right before you. Hebrews says he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprints of his nature. Standing before you, and yet you do not see. And you do not have his word abiding in you. His word, the Old Testament scriptures, the word not produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. His word that is eternal, from which not one jot or tittle shall, be, shall pass before it is accomplished. His word, the living word, the word made flesh, standing before you. Jesus the Christ, the living word of God, presented to you, declared to you. And yet you do not have me as an abiding possession in your heart. Most of you have, are, have, are married, have been married, and been in a relationship. Um, Suzanne knows where everything is in our house. This is my wife, Suzanne, by the way. I didn't introduce her earlier. She's, she's the one who keeps me on track and is probably telling me it's way past time for me to sit down. But I will be looking for something, and I'll say, honey, where is it? I don't see it. You guys ever do that? And she'll say, it's in the bathroom on the counter. And I'll be sitting there looking at the counter. Honey, I don't see it. And she'll come in and grab it and pick it up and say, it's right there. Oh, now I see it. Has that ever happened to you? Okay. Thank you. I was hoping it wasn't just me. I was hoping it wasn't just me. Here's what I pray. Christ has presented himself to you by his own testimony, by witnesses, by the testimony of Scripture, and by the testimony of changed lives around you. You remember Dr. Linneman? She said, I saw Christ in people. I heard the words of God from those who spoke them to me. And if you're here and your eyes have been blinded, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will open your eyes today and you will believe. And if you're here and you're a believer as you marvel on the Word of God and who He is, I pray that you'll take that message to others and don't be surprised when they don't get it. You can't get mad at lost people for acting like lost people. You can't be upset with people whose eyes have been blinded by the God of this world, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, but you can be consistently in shining the light. You can be consistent in shining the light that the Holy Spirit of God may open their eyes to see the truth. And I pray that some of you 
I've had your eyes open this morning by the testimony of Jesus. He's the Savior. He's the only way. Isn't God good? Father, thank you for our time together this morning. We, we just look at this little passage, and, and, and I know that time just flies, and we see the wonder of who you are, the claims that you make. They're, they're audacious. They are awesome. They are, you are the Savior. You're the only way that we can have life and be moved from death to life. You're the one who can forgive our sins and wash us and cleanse us and make us new and make us whole. And I pray, Father, that you will, uh, you will make yourself clear to us, that we will see you and really see you. Not just see a historical figure, not just see a, a moral teacher, but we will see you as the revealed Son of God, the Son of Man, predicted in Daniel chapter 7. That we'll see you as the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That we will see you as the one who went to the cross to die for us, your enemies, because of your love toward us. That you took the wrath of God against sin on yourself. That you might give your righteousness to us and bring us to life so that we're not only children of God, we are heirs of God. And we can be at one in a personal relationship with God, just as you were. Father, I pray that you will just move in us and work in us for your glory. In your name I pray. Amen.